So Colossians is a four-chapter book only, 95 verses. You can memorize 95 verses, right? 1,998 words in the King James Bible. Lightfoot's commentary said it's the most unimportant town that Paul ever wrote a letter. Colossae really was, at one time, it was a very prominent city, but the Romans built a road out of the Lycus Valley, and basically Colossae came almost to be a ghost town. The much more significant towns in that Lycus Valley was Laodicea and Hierapolis. But yet, they were having some issues. And boy, if it wasn't for the churches having problems, we wouldn't have any of the New Testament, I don't think. So praise God for church problems, other people's church problems, not ours, of course. But Paul wrote this around 63 AD. He probably wrote the letter right out after Epaphras came to visit um, the church in Colossae. We, we learn that in chapter 1, verse 7, as you have learned from Epaphras. Also, uh, three years earlier, or years earlier, Paul had pastored in Ephesus for three years. And during that time, people that got saved in that college town would go back to their homes and share the gospel and unwittingly become evangelists and church starters, and Epaphras was such a man. Paul had never been to this little church. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, I've never seen, uh, you've never seen my face in the flesh. And again, this was written in prison. Chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 18 says, of which I am in chains, remember my chains. There, Paul is addressing certain philosophies of men. Uh, there's a mythical teaching, there is a legalistic Judaism, which is an issue, and a very early Gnosticism, which we are going to go into in detail as we get to that issue. Also, you know that little tiny one-page book, Philemon, that Paul writes? It was there in Colossae where they lived. So it is in the southern edge of the Lycus Valley, so notice where it is there in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. And uh, let's go to a more detailed map. Look, almost down by the ocean there, um, you'll see Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. Laodicea is about eight miles away uh, to the west. Hierapolis is about 7.8 miles, eight miles away to the northwest. And uh, it was approximately 112 miles from Ephesus, so a pretty good distance uh, from there. And hopefully that will give you a, a sense of uh, the location of that. Well, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, Sometimes, at least in one of Paul's epistles, I will do a whole teaching on the life of Apostle Paul. But I think we've been there and done that. And uh, so we know his story. Most of the book of Acts is following him. The video camera soon leaves Peter and the apostles, and it focuses on this guy, Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, 
of the tribe of Benjamin. He had the kingly name Saul. But when God got a hold of him, he changed his name to Little. I think it was the heart change. He's saying that he was a humble in heart. He, he had become this prideful Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Thank God I'm not like that tax collector over there. Thank you that I do everything right. And somehow, Jesus being the most number one historical figure during Paul's time in Jerusalem, he was so immersed, I guess, in studying uh, Judaism, uh, it never got past, it never got to him. But soon after the resurrection, uh, Paul, more than anyone else, had a fervor to stomp out this Christian sect. He even got letters to go out of the country to Damascus to find Christians there. And if they didn't let him arrest them, he would kill them. But they would bring them back and be tried. And uh, the Lord stopped Paul and that Damascus rose and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And there he was blinded by that light. He went into um, Damascus, and God spoke to a guy named Ananias and said, go lay hands on Brother Saul. He's like, this is guy's gonna, he's a persecutor. I'm not going to lay hands on him. And the Lord said, oh, yeah, you are. And when he laid hands on him, the scales fell out of his eyes, and he immediately started preaching and really upsetting people. They had to help him escape in a basket over the wall at night to just run for his life. He went to Saudi Arabia for three years, and there God gave him personal revelation. He did spend three years with Jesus, but it was one-on-one -on -one tutoring through revelation. And so Paul says, it's my gospel. And this gospel that Christ gave me is the gospel for the Gentiles. Interesting, Paul says in Romans, he says, all Gentiles will be judged by God by my gospel. So receiving the, the Paul's apostle, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, God gave me the gospel. And that was simply that Christ died according to the scriptures for our sins. He was buried. And then on the third day, he raised again according to scriptures. Very, very simple. He actually tells Corinthians, I'm afraid for you that you're leaving the simplicity that's in Christ. And so Paul had a unique anointing and calling. I believe he was the replacement for Judas, the 12th apostle. The word apostle is, was used in the Gospels when Jesus sent out the 12 or sent out the 70. And literally is what it means, sent one, but it is a title, like a delegate or a messenger or an ambassador. But Paul could speak to any of the churches that were Gentile churches because he indeed was the apostle to the Gentiles. God gave him this command. And um, of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. In Acts 9, Jesus said to him, Go, you're a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and also the children of Israel. Acts 13, they were in Antioch, which really was the birthplace of the Gentile church. It wasn't Jerusalem. It was Antioch. That was the home base. 
And Paul was there and with Barnabas and some prophets and teachers, and they prayed, and the Holy Spirit spoke and says, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry I have called them. That, and after having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them out. And in that chapter, they're both called apostles. Later, Paul recounting um, his story of what the Lord said to him in Acts 9, he said, uh, I depart now, for I will send you the word apostle. I apostle you uh, to go far out and preach to the Gentiles. And this is not, in Galatians 1, he says, this calling was not from man. In Galatians 1.15, he says, I can see God's predestined plan from my mother's womb for, for this calling. Um, it was God's command that he do this. He didn't have an option like Jeremiah or Jonah. Um, this was a command of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 that God counted him faithful, putting him into the ministry, and the grace of the Lord is exceedingly abundant. And then he says, I was appointed, ordained to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Of course, his favorite phrase we find in 2 Timothy 1.1 and 2 Corinthians 1.1 and Ephesians 1.1 and here in Colossians 1.1, it's by the will of God. Now you say, why is Paul having to do this? Because everybody challenged his authority. They didn't accept him. Read, even we studied Philippians. It said there was guys going out to all the churches preaching the gospel, but their main reason they were there was to tell people that Paul was in the wrong, <laughs> that Paul was put in prison because God wanted to shut him up. And, and, and Paul's reaction was that, grace, grace, you know. I'm just glad the gospel is being preached, even though they were doing him great harm. To the churches he actually started and the Holy Spirit moved and people were healed and miracles happened. They now were having nothing to do with Paul. We look at his last letter in 2 Timothy, even his son Timothy was not wanting to associate with him. Interesting, the guy that wrote half of the New Testament, really the most important of all parts of the Bible. It wouldn't be the Old Testament. It's not even the Gospels. It is the epistles of Paul and the other apostles that are the most important part of the Bible. And yet, they couldn't see it. Interesting. Interesting that the people that lived at Paul's time could not see Paul as this person by the will of God that is an apostle. And of course, the staying power, you know, of, of half of the New Testament written by him makes it clear that he is our apostle. He's the one that we have learned doctrine from. It's through his lenses, so to speak, we see Jesus and what Jesus said and understanding of salvation. And we've got to realize that Jesus' ministry was to the Jews. He actually said that. Sometimes Gentiles would come and he'd say, my ministry is not to Gentiles. My ministry is to the Jews. And he talked about the establishing the kingdom of heaven. It would come. He's talking about the tribulation period and the millennial reign. Because right now we're in the time of the church, but when the rapture happens, all focus is going to be on Israel. Gentiles also will be saved, but it's about Israel. 
And God has two resurrected prophets in Jerusalem that cannot die, even though they try to kill him. And they are proclaiming for the first three and a half years the prophecies that are going to happen in that tribulation period. And the whole world observes them. The focus is on 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe that are worldwide evangelists. The focus is on Jerusalem and the temple being rebuilt and the Antichrist coming in there claiming to be Christ in the middle of that tribulation period. And of course, Paul says in Romans, and after that, all Israel will be saved. Not individually, everybody, but as a nation, they're going to turn back to God. And then the millennial reign is focused on those who have survived the tribulation period and those who have believed in the for a thousand years. Christ is going to be king. All the children of Israel will inhabit all the promised land for the first time that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we will rule and reign with him as children of Abraham by faith. But Paul's teaching is focused on after the cross. And what does that mean since the Israel will not receive their Messiah? What's that mean for the rest of the world? And he says in Romans 11, these Jews are so anointed, even when they reject their Messiah, it means salvation for everybody else. And uh, indeed, that's exactly what happened. So that's the dispensation of time we're in right now, is the focus on all of the world. God's going to bring the focus back to the Jews after the rapture. And then he also says, my brother, our, our brother Timothy, and of course, almost all the letters, Timothy is there by his side. Remember in Acts 16? He, he brought Timothy uh, to the Lord, and he took him as a teenage boy to, to be a part of his evangelistic team. His dad was a Gentile, so he wasn't circumcised. So Paul had him circumcised so they could minister to the Jews first and afterwards to the Gentiles. But Timothy was by his side. I think the best way to talk about Timothy is out of Philippians 2, verse 19 to 22, where he says, everybody else... All the other guys with me. This is sort of a slam on Silas and Luke and Barnabas and Titus and all of these guys saying they all, to some degree, care about their own interest before the interest of the church. Only Timothy seeks the welfare of the church before his own welfare. It's only him that has taken the gospel that God has given to me and been faithful in proclaiming it as a son in the faith with a proven character. Well, in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the saints. Notice there, that word, we're familiar with it. It's, it's the same root as holy. And it really means to be sanctified. The priests were sanctified. Their tools were sanctified. This is what they had and used. Only for God's use. And he is saying that's who the Colossian church is. Our saints. Now notice there. It's in the plural. 
Nowhere in the New Testament does it ever refer to an individual. You will never find in the New Testament an individual person being called a saint. There is one time in Philippians uh, 4 verse 21 where saint is singular, but it's talking about the group of believers. <laughs> so that group of believers, they're all they're saint. But it, it, even then it's in the plural that it's understood. And so the Catholics have just, just really warped this concept that somebody can attain to some superhero status or super Christian status and they, you know, get a statue built and people pray to them so they can talk to Jesus on your behalf, this kind of thing. It, it's, it is always talking about a group of people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 through 13, it talks about this. The moment we believe we are saints, he says, for as the body is one, count them up, has many members, but all the members that are one body, being many are, what guys? One body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, we've all been made to drink into this one spirit. Understand that through the Apostle Paul's eyes, most Christian doctrines are not to individuals. He only sees the New Testament doctrines as a whole, the church as a whole. So when you talk about the bride of Christ, I've had men tell me that, new Christians going, that feels so gay to me. It feels so wrong. I'm the bride of Christ. I've heard pastors say that. I'm the bride of Christ. It's like, ugh. There's, there's several New Testament doctrines that, that only work as a whole. As a whole, the church, as one body, we are the bride of Christ. And you try to change it, it gets bizarre. The same with election. The only elections in the Bible are the nation of Israel, not an individual person. And then Jesus, that's the only individual person. The Messiah is the chosen. And then it's the church, that's it. The church as a whole are the elect of God. It's not an individual thing. Calvinists, they make it an individual thing and it gets weird. You're the chosen, and, and, it, and it makes it warped in its sense of its meaning, and they take it to a place that it's wrong, and it's not true Christian doctrine. So again, we, don't, we want to get away from the individualistic, and that's very American. God loves you. You know, the Bible doesn't say that. It says in Ephesians 5, God loves the church. It says Jesus loves the church. And he died for the church. Now, does God love all of us individually? Of course, that's true. But even John 3, 16, God so loves the world. To all who will believe, whoever will believe. We were not to step into Christianity going, it's about me. You, you hear people say that. I don't go to church because it's a personal thing. I, I don't think the early church would have had that mentality. The moment we believe, we come into the whole. We don't stay separate 
in our own little world. And I have a Christianity that's not like nobody else's because me and God got this personal, individualistic thing worked out. You will not find such a concept in the New Testament whatsoever. And again, uh, the, the coronavirus was a blessing in one way because a lot of people got online and the gospel went throughout the, the world in a unique way. But now the streaming, for the most part, is becoming an absolute curse. Because people are saying, well, I can get what I need in my house, in my bed, when I want, how I want. And it's like, that is not the love of Christ. Christ loves the church. So what are we to do? Love the church. We need to love whatever God loves. I had somebody ask us this week going, why are the Jews so plagued? Wherever they're out in the world, they're hated. What's wrong with the Jews? That's what they asked me. And I said, absolutely nothing. It's everything that God loves, Satan hates. And he's going to pound it. He's going to try to distort it. And he's going to try to make it look weird and ugly and bizarre, and it's them. No. The church is wonderful. And even when we walk through those doors, we shouldn't walk in like we go to a grocery store and say, how does this please me? We should walk in, how do I please others? I'm not walking in going, hey, you, wash my feet. <laughs> we, we should be looking for feet to wash, right? We, we, we don't want to get in that consumer mentality. The church is about me. Did I like the music? Did I like the sermon? Were the seats soft enough? Was the air conditioning on correctly? Was, you know, did, how did it all please me? I think that mentality has killed the church. And you know what? I, I think it's a good thing. I think as that we see people leaving church, it happened in Germany, it happened in England, it's happening here. In a sense, I think those who are left are saying it's a lot more than just going and observing like we go to a movie. We need to press in and get involved in one another's lives. And I'll tell you, especially the younger generation, that's what they're longing for. And let me tell you, the younger people are very open to older people speaking into their lives and, and caring for them. And so many people are in so many anxieties and worries. And if we could just focus on them and minister to them, it would be the very motivation they need to be a part of the body of Christ. And so, again here, we are all saints. The moment you believe, we are holy, sanctified, set apart for God's use only. That's the idea. And then he says, faithful brethren. You're going, oh, okay, here's the catch. Here's the fine print. Let's not forget what Paul says about his faithfulness to God in 1 Timothy 1.12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who enabled me, counting me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Was I really faithful enough to be in the ministry? No. Was I a good enough Christian? No. I remember Gail Irwin used to always say, God takes the absolute weakest Christians that would never make it unless they're senior pastors. They have to study the Bible and go to church and that's why he makes. So everybody that's a pastor, you go, oh, they're a pastor. That's just the, the weakest Christians that need that much help to get to church and follow the Lord. 
And I think it's true. And Paul is saying, hey, I, I, am, I wasn't faithful. It wasn't me. But God, through the eyes of grace and mercy and love, saw me and counted me faithful. However, Paul does later on say, it's, that's it. When we stand before the Lord, there's one thing that's going to be the major thing of all things, especially as a Christian leader. In, in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And he goes on talking about how nobody else can judge it. He can't judge himself on that. Other people can't judge him, which they were on that. And he says, really, it's only God has the power to judge that. And this is what he said in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord Jesus comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness, reveal the counsels of the heart. Now notice this last phrase. Then each one's praise will come from God. Notice it doesn't say there, each one's condemnation or praise will come from God. It doesn't say that. He's talking about the bema seat of Christ and rewards. It's only a positive statement. There's not going to be some, wow, I was going to take you to heaven, but it got the eraser here. You weren't faithful enough. And you had some days that were pretty good, but nope. No, he's talking about reward. He very clearly. Then when I stand before God, then we'll see what my reward ends up being. Remember in chapter 3? He just talked about that in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says on one foundation, which is Christ, that can't be changed. God makes the foundation and it'll always stand. But how we build on that foundation, some hay, wood, and stubble, some precious metals, the fire will declare it. Some people, all that would be left is a foundation. They'll have no rewards in heaven. And now he says, what's the top of that list of, of what the fire is going to burn? Really, when it comes down to it, it's faithfulness. That one item is the most major issue. And I can't judge myself on that. All I can do is simply come to that day of judgment and see what reward I have left. And of course, even in that, God's grace carries us, doesn't it? We know that passage in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. He can't deny himself. So even then, you know, I, I love that Zacharias 3 story where Satan brings the high priest before God and he says, this guy should be condemned. Look at his priestly outfit. It's dirty. It's torn. His turban, it's gone. It's not even there. And Satan's argument was just perfect. This guy should be put to death according to the law. And Jesus ordered a new garment to be brought. Gave him a new hat. And then the Lord says, looks great to me. He had no condemnation even when condemnation should have been there. But again, it's God's grace in our life that's going to cause us to have faithfulness. So I think that's an important note. Or, you know, when he talks about the faithful brethren, it could be as simple as this. He's referring to those who haven't given in to the false doctrines. 
to the faithful brethren, those who have not listened to those horrible philosophies that Paul's going to talk about in Colossians. This next little phrase, I want to spend a couple minutes on it, in Christ. Some translations say in the union with Christ. That is the idea. Who are in union with Christ. And there's two aspects of this. One is positionally, in Colossians 3.3, it's going to tell us your life is hidden with Christ in God. The moment we believe, God's spirit comes into us, but in this way we don't understand, we become in union with him as well. Then there's the practical aspect, our part of abiding in Christ. We are also to be in Christ practically each and every day. John 17, listen to how it says it in verse 20 and 21. I do not pray for these alone, but I also pray for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. It's important. It's not just a one-way street. It's both happening. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. So notice there in verse 21, it's both sides of the coin. He says first that they may be one with us. And then the second part of that, he says that they also may be one in us. They may be one with us as I am in you and you are in me, that they would be in us. But then also, he turns around and says that they also may be in us. So we are, we're with, they'd be with us, but then they would also be in us. And this is where Paul talks about in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless you abide in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. In verse 7, John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will and it shall be done for you. In John 15, 9, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. So in essence, let's understand. We've been studying this in the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. When we believe on the Lord, God's predestined a good plan for our life, blessings in our life. The most The first blessing he gives us as a gift is eternal life. And that's going to happen. He's got a hold of us. He'll never let us go. All that come unto me, I will raise them up on the last day. And of them, I lose none. All who come unto me are in my hand. And of them, I lose none. And also they're in the Father's hand. And he's greater than all. Also, it tells us in Romans 8, that those who have been predestined, are going to be changed into the image of the Son. So God blesses us with the Holy Spirit coming in our life, circumcising that old sinful heart, gives us a new nature. He's written our name in the book of life. He is going to be with us and never leave us or forsake us. Those things, if you're in a valley, if you're doing great spiritually or horrible spiritually, God is going to remain faithful and all of these blessings are going to come to us even if you're living in a horrible, sinful condition. But let me tell you, as wonderful as those things are that God has done as a gift to us, 80, 90% of the blessings that we can have 
in this earth and in the life to come come from your response, from your obedience, from your submission. And that's why he says it, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you know, we're saved by grace through faith in that grace, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. And what's the next verse? Verse 10, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Didn't say we will. We looked at this in Genesis 26 and also in Genesis 22, where God says, I will bless you. There, unlike chapter Genesis 12, 15, and 17, he says this. It's, it's in the reflexive. He says, I am giving you an option, an opportunity to bless yourself, literally. Now, he also says, I'm going to bless you, which he does. He, 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 he chooses Abraham, and through his seed, the Messiah is going to come, and he's with him. He protects him, even from his own foolishness, um, saying, Sarah's my sister, and, and protects her from Pharaoh, and protects her, protects him from the, the enemy, um, gives them provisions. He takes care of them. But then when Abraham offered up his son Isaac, God says, you're blessed and you're going to be a blessing. But it's in the reflexive. You're blessing yourself and you're going to be blessing your descendants with this kind of obedience. So in the same way, there is so much energy and joy and life as we walk in the spirit. Even as believers, we can walk in the flesh and we are grieved. We don't have the peace of God. Instead of being fruitful, we're being fruitless. And there it is. All we got to do is get out of the pig pen and start walking towards dad. And so it's a day-by-day thing. We have to deny ourselves, take up the cross, beat our body in subjection, in essence, be in Christ. And not be dependent from Christ, be, in, be or not independent from Christ, but dependent in Christ. So he's saying, yes, I'm in you. Yes, you're in me. But then also you would be practically in Christ as you walk. And God has got all those wonderful works that we should walk in them. But some will bear 20-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And, uh, you know, John says, abide in him, little children. So when he appears, you don't shrink away in shame at his appearing. And so it's an important thing to understand the wonderful blessings that God's giving all who believe. But there is a whole bunch of things that will give us blessings on this earth and great rewards in heaven if we will live a life abiding in him and in him. And, and Christians, again, can look like non-Christians. They can walk like non-Christians, even though they're Christians. There's Christians that are suffering. A lot of the difficulties, they wouldn't be suffering if they were walking in Christ, abiding in Christ. And there's a, a lot of Christians that are going to have no reward in heaven because they didn't live with a heavenly mindset, but an earthly mindset and an earthly strength. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These were the two common words of the day. The one in the Greek 
um, which is charisis, which is grace, which, you know, generically, it just meant blessing. But the church Christianized it. (laughs) And it now is understood to be a part of the nature of God. And this is a picture of the Christian God. This merciful kindness that continually pouring upon those who are the least souls that should be receiving such kindness and patience and love. But the word itself is talking about the unique relationship we have with God through grace, this God of all grace. And then the Jews would say in the Hebrew, not in the Greek, but in the Hebrew, shalom which doesn't just mean peace in a generic sense. It really is talking about God's spirit just making you whole, bringing wellness and prosperity and a a genuine peace in your soul that God is bringing to you. Chuck always says grace and peace, the Siamese twins, because it's always first grace. You're never going to get to the peace of God until you understand and live in the dynamic of the grace of God. And I'll tell you what, from the radio program, each Saturday at one, I am amazed. I'm getting phone calls and talking to people and they're just like, hey, I heard you talking to, I have, explain this to me again. Something that if you've you know, been here the last two years, you could easily explain to them. Most of these people have been in church for decades or all of life. And they have never understood grace. They've never truly been at peace in their souls. I'm saved and going to heaven. Because they're thinking, you know, it's, it's an, a teeter-totter whether they're going to heaven or not. Because, yeah, I believe in God by faith. But I've got to do, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And i got to, you know. And, and, and they, even when they are walking in obedience, they're not at peace because they're afraid they're going to quit walking in obedience. I've been walking in obedience a year, but what about next year? You know, it's always this worry about their ability to save themselves. And if they did get saved, to hang on to that salvation, it's a tough thing, you know. Once you get it, it's hard to keep it. That, that's not in the Bible whatsoever. That's opposite of the grace. And he says this grace is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by willing it. See, some people say, just will the grace of God. It can't happen. It's a byproduct of abiding in Christ. It's a byproduct from God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. The world can never know this peace because they have not by faith received the grace. The peace of God comes once people are walking by faith in the grace of Christ. Now, I would like just to make a quick textual variance note here. You will notice virtually all translations, except the King James, the New King James, and a few unknown translations, not very known, they all say from God our Father, period. They do not have and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I fully believe in the Byzantine text which the King James Bible comes from. And by the way, the Alexandrian texts weren't even around uh, until the 1800s when archaeology even began. So for almost 500 years, there wasn't the choice of the Alexandrian texts and the Sinaiticus and the others. There's several texts out there. They weren't even an option to have. 
But today, when you look at textual variants, which I'm not going to go into it this morning, um, most will rely upon the Alexandrian text rather than hanging on to the Byzantine text. And this is why I stay with the King James or New King James, because they have the grace and the peace only coming from God the Father. But we all know that it comes through our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Enough said on that. So let's talk about grace just a few minutes here. The grace, it's an unmerited, unearned favor. It's undeserved favor. It cannot be earned, and if you try to earn it, you're not walking by faith. It does not qualify itself by saying something in the past has made you blessed in the present, and it doesn't say God's going to go ahead and bless you in the present, trusting in the future you'll get better. <laughs> I think that's the mentality of most people. Well, God's blessing me, but I've got to get up to par before I die. God has said I'm saved, but we all know he's waiting to see me hit some home runs before he decides to really keep me on the team. No, it's not about the past. It's not about the present. It's not about the future. It's not you doing something for God. It's not because you're now being worthy where you used to not be worthy. It's unmerited. Do you understand that? It is not saying, you mowed my yard, here's $20. You read the Bible every day this week, go ahead, I'll pray the prayer now, and I'll answer it. You've been going to church every Sunday, you've been living like the devil during the week, but you've been going to church every Sunday, so you're still in the running for going to heaven. It's unearned, it's unmerited, we're not worthy of it, never will be worthy of it. It's unearned. You cannot earn it. It's impossible. It's undeserved. We never do or do something or, or will something or be something that would cause us to be worthy to go to heaven. There's never a point in a person's life who, who says, yeah, I mean, God has got a winner here. And of course I'm going to be in heaven. Have you seen the way I live? Have you seen how holy and righteous I am? No, never is going to happen. And, and people thinking that, that God hasn't really given them salvation until they attain to that, it is a false teaching. It's from the pit of hell. It's talking about the very nature of God. Understand, when we talk about grace, we're talking about a revelation of God that happened in Christ Jesus. God has always been this. God has always been the God, not by earning it, not because you deserve it, not because you're worthy of it. God has always been, I'm giving this to you because of who I am. I bless the unlovely, the unworthy, the sinner. In John 1.14, wow, he lays it on here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1.16, and of his fullness, 
We've all received grace upon grace. Do you you understand that grace by itself is all you need and much, much, much more? So saying grace upon grace, it's an impossibility. Because grace by itself is much, much more than you need. So when you come to God with sin and, and he says, oh, okay, you know, I'll forgive that, but not much more. It's just untrue. I picture a guy coming to God, going, God, I'm so unworthy. And I, if you kick me out of here right now, I'd understand. And, and I'm such a sinner. And I determined this week, there's no way I'm going to do that or say that or look at that, or be a part of that. And I've done it more this week than I've ever done in my whole life. I'm such a horrible worm. Would you please, 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 please squeak out a little mercy and forgiveness for me? And God is like, looking at this guy going, this guy is going to learn a lesson today. And there he is with this little five-gallon bucket wanting it to get filled up with mercy and forgiveness. And all of a sudden, there's this fire hose that gets turned on him of of mercy and forgiveness. And he he can't hold on to that bucket very well. And and then another fire hose and another one. and, And all of a sudden, there's the angels and the Lord laughing just going, this is guy who's going to learn my fullness. He's going to receive of my fullness. And after a little while, this guy's out in this rather large pond, filling up with his little bucket, going, hey. And God goes, that's just grace. Now here's upon grace. And he looks in the distance, and there's a wall of a dam opening up. And there's another one over here, and another one behind him, another one over there. And then all of a sudden, the thunder And he's there, and he finally can't even see land anymore. You see, that's our God. Every day, we we, we wake up with that much mercy. Every day, we wake up with that much kindness of God. Every day, God's love, higher than the heavens, wider and deeper than the oceans. God's love his kindness, his mercy, his patience, his grace. Do you understand? This is why the Bible tells us where our sin abounds, what? His grace abounds much more. Nothing, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. It's an impossibility when you are standing before the God of grace. Remember Psalms 106, it's, it says there that, yes, you went into captivity. You were almost destroyed because of your sinful ways. And then he gets specific. Many times you have sacrificed your babies to demons. But yet in the multitudes of my mercy, I forgave you. But then you did it again. And many more times you did this. And I relented in my judgment and gave mercy and forgave you. I had a guy one time say, yeah, I've sinned so much. There's no way God could forgive me. I'm like, oh, my goodness. You have burned your baby alive worshiping Satan, haven't you? The guy looked at me going, are you crazy? No. Well, let me show you Psalms 106. Even if you had done that, God would have forgiven you. 
Even if you had done it many times, look at it. God still would have forgiven you. Why does the Lord say those kind of things in the Bible? He wants us to understand there is no limits to his grace. Here's the only sin God won't forgive. You not believing God can forgive. <laughs> you thinking that God's grace got tapped out. That I, you know, I, I, I had a lifetime of mercy, but I used it up by the time I was 35. And, and you know, I, there's no mercy left for me. There was the limitation and I, I, I extended my limitation. First Peter 5.10, let me read some scriptures on grace. May the God of all grace, he's grace upon grace, the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus after you suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. What is going to do that? What's going to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you? All the God of all grace, his nature, who he is. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and the God is able to make all grace abound towards you. The God of all grace abounds all grace towards you. That you having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Sort of a dumb thing to have to say, Right? Of course it is. God's grace is sufficient for everybody. But nevertheless, we don't get it sometimes. He's got to take the big hammer to break the nut, right? May God of all, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon you. You see, Satan's plan is to frustrate the grace of God in your life. He's to try to get you to think that God's requiring something of you. He's not. He wants you to think, Satan wants you to think when you come into that throne room of grace that God's up there going, what are you here for? Lord, I've sinned. What? What? What did you do? And God's like, whoa, man, that really makes me mad, upsets me. I forgive you, but don't do anything like that again if you expect to get to heaven. And we got to come back to the throne of grace. And God's now looking at us going, you're, you're here twice in one day? And then five minutes later, we're back. And God's like, has anybody else? Not in a thousand years, Lord. Okay. Three times, that's, that's it, you know. And five minutes later, we've got to come back. And this time, the Lord's looking at you going, you are such a loser. Come in, come in, come in. What now? Another sin? Looks at Gabriel, looks at Michael. They're all looking rather perturbed. Next person, you again? Would you somebody look to see if his name's really in the book of life? I, out of all of history and Christianity, no one has ever needed this much mercy and forgiveness. You have won. I, I, I can't even look at you. Just, just go. And if you need forgiveness again, just wait till tomorrow, please. And what happens eventually, we, we start hardening our heart. Going, I don't need the attitude. I don't need the judgment. I don't need this, this harshness. I, I, 
forget it. Screw you, God. I'm out of here. I don't even try to be a Christian anymore. That's Satan's plan. To get you to think whatever you've attained to, God raises the bar a little higher. And God raises the bar a little higher. And God raises the bar. No matter what you do, you always fail. And you wake up going, how am I going to fail God again this week? I am just not attaining. I am not making it. This is Satan's plan. And unfortunately, churches have not taught the grace of God the way they should. And they've given people that idea that, that yes, God gives salvation as a gift, but come on, that means you are going to live a certain lifestyle. And when you fail, you can count on wondering whether you're going to make it to heaven or not. And until you get back to where you should be, who knows? Who knows? And again, I was talking to somebody this week that said that very thing. They said, yeah, you know, back in my 20s, I, I was sure I was going to heaven. Since then, you know, it's 50-50. And if I make it to heaven this, if I make it to heaven that. And it just grieves me. Because I, I grew up in a church like that, that, that you wondered Always wondered because there was always the hinge that yes, God is 100% being faithful and merciful in saving you, but you have a part to play to make sure that it really happens. So Satan wants to frustrate us. I know when my kids were small and they would ride the tricycle and and oh, they'd fall, and oh, my, I, I, I'm dying, I'm dying. And they'd look at their knee, couldn't even see the scrape. You'd put a Mickey Mouse Band-Aid on them, and two minutes later, oh, my elbow, and you'd kiss it and put another Band-Aid on it. And this would go on. After 20 minutes, they'd have 100 Band-Aids on them. Did I ever scold them? Just quit riding that bike. Get off that bike. Get, you know, don't come back to me. Now we loved it. We loved kissing their boo-boos. We loved, you know, hugging them and, and, you know, comforting them. I miss those days, right? In the same way, when we come to God, he loves us. He's smiling at us. He's never upset. He knows our frame. He knows we're but dust. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities us. He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. We know God. We're not going to get to heaven and go, nice to meet you, Jesus. I've read your book. And uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to get to know you. No, we know him. He's the God of all grace. He's the God of grace upon grace. He's the God of, of his fullness. Be it unto you according to your faith. Of his fullness, you should be receiving throughout the day, every day. And we just keep on coming with joy and he's kissing our alleys and comforting us and hugging us. He's been tempted in all ways we've been tempted, but yet he's our great high priest who sympathizes with us. Never this condemning judgment, but Satan wants to manipulate it. You got to get better tomorrow. You need to do better. You still need to be more holy. You still need to be more diligent. You still need to be. Now we talked about earlier, and abide in Christ and being in Christ. There's a whole world 
of joy, of walking in the spirit, of fruitfulness, of blessing, that I think a lot of Christians, especially in America, we don't want to deny ourselves. We see the commercial, we want to go buy it. <laughs> you know, supersize me. You know, we, we, we don't like our flesh to be uncomfortable. Taking up a cross, beating our body in subjection. That, the American church, that's like, whoa, that's, that's a little harsh. That's a little, I, I don't like that. It doesn't go with our organ and our nice pews and our comfortable building. But yet, if we will do that, so many blessings are there that God's set up that you could walk in them. Imagine if you had a two- or three-year-old child that was just depressed. You go in there, and there's your three-year-old, and just, I want to die, Dad. I just got to die. I want to die. You're like, what is going on with a three-year-old suicidal? I said to myself on Sunday night, I'm not going to poop my diaper this week. It's so messy and so smelly and mom has to stop everything and it's so much work for her and it's been going on for years and I just can't do it. I'm just a failure. I just want to die. Now, if a kid was worried and stressed, I mean, what as a parent would that do to you? Just, it would just break your heart. You should just enjoy being three. We understood before you were ever born that you would go through a potty training season of your life. We're going to get you there. We're going to help you get there. This is not on you. As the Lord, Bible says, the Lord is our shepherd. <laughs> we shall not want. And it's Okay. We, we know we got to change many more diapers until you're, you're potty trained. And it, it's not that way. Just, we'll get you there. We're going to walk with you and, and get out of there. Until then, just have joy. Oh, I can't. I know it grieves mom so much. And, and, you know, my brothers and sisters say, oh, smelly. And he smells. And, and I just can't be that guy anymore. I mean, isn't that just ridiculous? These are complete lies that Satan wants you to believe. Again, in Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Being confident, Philippians 1.6, being confident this very thing, he who began the good work in you, he will complete it right up until we see Jesus through death or the rapture. In Romans 7.25, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercessions for them. And again, in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, seeing them, we have such a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then the peace again. It's not the peace of this world. It's not the peace that you can will. It's a byproduct of the grace. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. God doesn't want to see us down here like that three-year-old baby all bummed going, 
so hard to be a Christian. I hate being a Christian. I'm tired of failing you, God. I'm tired of being so sinful. I'm tired of this old flesh. I, I, I just can't do it anymore because I just constantly fail you. And I just give up. Forget church. Forget the Bible. I just give up. I'm just going to, you know, if anybody understands grace, they would never feel pressure like that to begin with. They just come unto Jesus and learn of him. And they'd find his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and they would find a rest for their souls. And this is the Christianity that you want to preach to the world. Come unto Jesus, the God of all grace, of his fullness receive grace upon grace. In Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So the response today is just to receive by faith the Lord's words into our hearts. God so loves the world. He loves us. He's for us. He's not against us. He's making it so simple that he says here, He gave his only begotten son. That was not simple. Jesus died on the cross. That was not simple. That was harsh, difficult things. But now it's simple for us. Whoever believes, there it is, shall never perish. No footnote there. Notice, no except this and this and this. It's just, it's over. You will never perish and you shall have everlasting life. By grace, we've been saved, right? And he tells us of this love in Romans 8.32. For he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So if if he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to bear your sins, why would he be precipity about giving you forgiveness or mercy or grace or help or love? Why would, if he gave his only begotten son to die on a cross, isn't everything God does for us lesser than that? And, and where does God get glory having his son die for the whole world for the sins of everybody and then get nitpicky on who makes it to the end? Does that make sense? Of course it doesn't make sense. Quite the opposite, right? If he loves the world and he gave his son to die on the cross for all the world, isn't he freely going to give us all that we need to get us to the end to honor the son who died on the cross? I mean, wouldn't that be the most honoring thing unto Jesus? That those who believe in him would be given as a gift that they will never perish and they would have eternal life? That is the simple message. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried on the third day he raised according to the scriptures. That's it. It doesn't say how much faith doesn't say how dense the faith. It doesn't talk about a quality of faith or a knowledge of faith. It just says faith. Smallest of smallest of faith. A little mustard seed would move a mountain. Well, I think it's even smaller than that to be saved. All you have to do is believe that God is who he says he is and that the sacrifice of Christ is true and that God raised him from the dead. And finally, Ephesians 2, 8, just to wash you on this again. By grace, you've been saved through faith, having faith in the grace, 
not of yourself, not of your past self, present self, or possible future self. It's a gift of God, and the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Well, Lord, as we uh, always start these epistles, we stop and meditate a minute to ground us again in the grace. Grace changes everything. And it usually takes a minute to explain it. But then it changes for a lifetime. Lord, we ask right now that your word would go forth in our hearts in a new and fresh way. That we be grounded in the truth in a new and fresh way. That our hearts would rejoice with joy and peace, saying, thank you for being in me, Christ. But I'm going to be in you more. Thank you for loving me, but I'm going to love you more. Thank you for your grace. I'm going to walk in your grace with all my heart. Lord, I love you so much. I want to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fretting anything because I know that your height, depth, principalities, powers, or things present or things to come can ever shake me from your hand that you have me in. Your love will cause me to be more than a conqueror. But my heart now is, God, I want to walk as you have predestined good works that I possibly could walk in. Every day has been predestined that I could bear fruit and, and the fruit others can eat, others can be served, others can see the light and the salt. And then, of course, rewards in heaven. I want a crown, many crowns, just to throw before you saying, you alone are worthy, God. Lord, as you have done everything to set us free, that we could walk in holiness and that freedom, we ask today that the love of Christ would constrain us in a deeper and more profound way, that we would be more fruitful than we've ever been with joy and peace and believing Fill us now, empower us by your spirit and help us to set aside all the weights and sins that so easily trip us up and keep us from running the race with endurance. Keep us from evil, Lord, that we don't cause pain. And more than that, lead us in the way of everlasting life. Let's finish with the Lord's prayer this morning. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those of our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.